From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Fighting a wildfire in a pandemic can be isolating. Generally, we go out on the line and you spend, you know, 14 hours out there, or, you know, whatever your shift length is, and you come in and you sit down in a tent and you eat dinner and you talk to the guys that you're on the line with, and, and it helps pass time when you're away from home. Now we come in and you get your meal, go off someplace by yourself and have dinner and then, uh, you know, lay down for the night. We visit a fire camp. Also, college students back on campus and already in quarantine. Then two perspectives, a protester. I care more about the loss of life and the loss of eyes or limbs than I do a window at a courthouse. And a police sergeant. But we also have to protect businesses and properties and lives of other people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with the voices of firefighters who've come in from all over the country to tackle the Grizzly Creek fire. They were at a temporary fire camp between Glenwood Springs and Carbondale, just about three miles from the flames. Gabe Harry, a smoke jumper from Boise, Idaho, arrived with the long view. This particular area has a lot of history in it. We have South Canyon right down the road. Several firefighters died in that, and over the years, this area, Glenwood Canyon, has proven to be very difficult to fight fires in, and very difficult to get logistical support to fight those fires in. Over and over, these wildland firefighters mentioned the difficulty of the terrain here. The canyons, the, the valleys, they're hard to, to get into, so we have to wait till it gets to a certain point to be able to fight the fire. Andrew Carrillo came in from Oregon. The terrain, he says, is one challenge. So is the pandemic, making sure there's not a COVID-19 outbreak in the spike camp. It's a little different from before, from when we're used to fighting fires. Now with the mask and stuff like that, constantly washing our hands, constantly keeping our social distancing. It's kind of hard, you know, because we're not used to being like that. You know, we come together in the vehicles. You know, we're used to not practicing that stuff, you know, so now we have to really, really practice that. Many times we try to filter crews in so that we don't occupy an eating space. There's not like a a chow hall or anything. Again, Gabe Harry from Idaho. The nice thing about wildland fires, you are kind of out in your own space anyway. But when we get into these bigger camps, we have to manage ourselves appropriately, constantly washing our hands, um, trying to stay much more clean than you probably typically would. Uh, We have shower units here trying to ask folks to take a shower more frequently than they probably would, whether it be these things called bath in a bags. It's just a big towel. It's like a giant wet wipe. (laughs) There were about 200 firefighters the night of this visit, but that number fluctuates as crews cycle in and out. As you heard, they don't intermingle because of COVID-19. And that's a loss for Jerry Brown, who's come from Kentucky to fight the Grizzly Creek fire. He's with that state's forestry division, and he misses the camaraderie that was possible before the pandemic. You know, generally we go out on the line and you spend, you know, 14, 16 hours out there, or, you know, whatever your shift length is, and you come in and you sit down in a tent and you eat dinner and you talk to the guys that you're on the line with and, and chat, and it helps pass time when you're away from home. And uh, now we come in and you go up, get in line, and uh, you get your meal, go back to a vehicle, or you go off someplace by yourself and have dinner and then, uh, you know, lay down for the night. There's really not a conversation like there generally is. 
The novel coronavirus is just one more threat firefighters face. Another, the intense heat, says Tom Coletti, here from the Florida Forest Service. You know, we, get, we tend to get a lot of heat exhaustion and, you know, heat emergencies. Even though our people are in great physical condition, the, it just gets to them. Oh, the long hours, 16-hour days, breathing smoke, breathing dust in the heat, in the humidity, it just wears people down. Then there's the altitude, which not everyone's used to. This is Manuel Ramos-Torres' first time in the state. He works with a firefighting contractor based in Oregon. For those of us who live at a lower altitude, a state like Colorado is a little difficult because when we arrived here, the majority of us felt the lack of oxygen. As time goes on and since we've been here for days now, we're getting used to the climate and it's easier for us. Something else that eases their path? Locals expressing gratitude, says Tom Coletti. Community members have come to visit the camp, have visited us um, in stores. A, a person even offered to buy my, my lunch at one of the stores um, on the way over. Saw that I was at, working on the fires and, and wanted to buy my food for me. I, I, of course, didn't take them up on that offer. They bring food to the fire camps. They put thank you signs all over the roads at the entrance to our camp, wave to us, talk to us ask how they can help us and support us and, you know, offer us everything that you could possibly imagine. Even out in the field, we have people that come to us and bring us water and Gatorades and different things right out in the field. And there's the land where these firefighters camp each night, private ranch land in Spring Valley. Again, Andrew Carrillo. I just want to tell the, the landowner, thank you for allowing us to build his, his property and giving us a place to rest. Thank you. And let's meet that landowner now. Alan Cox's family has owned the ranch for generations. Alan, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Tell me how your ranch has transformed. Give me a sort of before and after, uh, now that the firefighters are there. Well, before, it was a, a vacant piece of land, grown up in brush. And just almost immediately, you know, they kind of warned me that things would happen very, very rapidly. And they started moving in uh, porta potties that were kind of staged out in different areas. And then they moved in a big dumpster and then they started moving in tents and trailers. And it's a full size operating camp now with all kinds of activity uh, washing station. Lots of trucks in and out. Uh, They come up and down our road twice, three times to water it down and try to keep the dust down. So this has gone from fallow field to hopping mini city. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And at night, the big lights and so forth, it's pretty amazing how they provide daylight with those big portable light stations that they have so everyone around knows that there's something going on down there now i wonder if you get paid for letting them on your land well they they asked me what i needed or what i wanted and i told them i didn't want anything so (laughs) you know they said well as a matter of course uh, you you need to cover in case there's uh damage on the property or whatever but i i I told them I didn't need any. It was just a kind of an honor. An honor, and I suppose, given how close the fire is, there must be some comfort in knowing that there are firefighters who would be very interested in saving your property. 
<laughs> yeah, that's what I told one person is that, you know, if you've got 200 uh, firefighters camped on your property, there's a pretty high likelihood that uh, you're safe. And if you see those firefighters leave, then you probably ought to leave the valley as well. Oh. <laughs> I understand that this ranch has been in your family, I think, for several generations. And I also note that your parents recently passed away. And I wonder if you are thinking of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my mom was really a, the social butterfly, and she was uh, always known as as any time you would just drop in the house, she would always have something sweet to eat. Uh, so whether it was banana bread, muffins, uh, coffee cake, and... Um, one of the neighbors came over the other night and noted that. <clears throat> Excuse me. She would have been right up there. Hmm. Handing out her baked goods. Tell me more about what the ranch represents to your family. Um, well, it you know, it's uh, unique in that you have a place to always go back to that you grew up in. Most people can't point to a place they grew up in and that their parents grew up in and that their grandparents grew up in. And so that's pretty unique. But, you know, they had a legacy of giving and always welcoming people in. And I think that's what, you know, I think about when I think about the opportunity that we had to let them use the land because it's, you converted vacant land that was grown up in brush into something that's productive. And I, I think they're looking down now and they're very pleased um, with that legacy. No, oh, what a lovely sentiment. What kind of interactions, if any, have you had with the firefighters? I haven't had direct interaction with the actual firefighters. The other day, one of the BLM law enforcement guys uh, drove down into the yard because he wanted to come down and see our cars that we have up in our our area down here. We call it the junk pile, but <laughs> that's all part of a, a ranch is they don't throw anything away. <laughs> they keep everything. And so, so we have uh, probably a dozen or so in various forms of condition classic cars and trucks and big trucks dump trucks uh he stayed and visited probably an hour and a half or so and it was really informative just to listen to their approach to the fire and their different methods and the schedule of the firefighters this particular person used to be a hella shoot rappel these are like the hell attack crews transported by helicopter to wildfires. And if that weren't enough, then they rappel down into places from a hovering <laughs> helicopter. Right. And he was smiling as he was describing it. You could just tell that these guys are, you know, you, it takes a certain chemistry to be that type of a person. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And... I really hope your ranch stays safe. Well, I think it will. <laughs> Thank you. 
Alan Cox owns a ranch where firefighters are camping as they battle the Grizzly Creek Fire. Freelance photojournalist Laurel Smith helped produce this piece. Be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Together, we've been transitioning to a new normal, and we all have a lot of questions. Your support means you, your friends, and your neighbors will continue to have access to CPR's trustworthy coverage of today's stories. Your membership ensures that this valuable community resource for news and music remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. There are many ways to give, including monthly, as an Evergreen member. Thank you for your support at CPR.org. The deaths of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Elijah McClain in Aurora, both in police custody, led to mass protests. Questions then arose over how and when police should intervene during demonstrations. We wanted to host a dialogue between a police officer and a protester. So Sergeant Rob Pride is with the Loveland Police Department. He's also the chairman of trustees for the National Fraternal Order of Police. Terrence Roberts also joins us. He's been a key organizer in the recent protests in Denver and Aurora. Roberts is with the Frontline Party for Revolutionary Action, or FPRA. They spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. We think of protesters on one side and police on the other, talking about each other, but not necessarily to each other. Terrence, what's something you just don't understand or something you'd want to ask Rob about police? Probably why the numbers are so disproportionate with police use of force per capita with how many African-Americans are not only in the state of Colorado, but in the United States and how he feels about that as a person of color being the head of the Fraternal Order of Police. It seems like a lot of his comrades don't like people who look like him. Yeah, no, that's a fair question, Terrence. And I understand how folks have those optics these days and, and how folks are feeling. But I would disagree with you a little bit on the actual numbers and the stats. You know, lately we've seen a lot of these high profile cases to include the absolutely horrific incident that occurred in Minneapolis with Mr. George Floyd. And that has brought about this conversation and brought about the light onto our profession. But I think if you truly look at the numbers, in fact, recently there was a study that came out from the Colorado Division of Criminal Justice when we're talking about use of force incidents here in Colorado that showed between January 1 of 2010 and January 30th of 2019, out of all the police shootings in the state of Colorado, only 13% of those shootings involved black African-Americans. You know, those are the types of numbers that nobody is talking about or wanting to hear about. You know, is there a problem, a systemic problem within policing on racism? I would argue no, but do we have problems within our profession? 100%. We know that, history has shown that, and we have to do everything we can to combat that. Okay, well, let me answer that. So even if the numbers say that only 13% were against African-Americans. Black people in Colorado only make up 5% of the population. So that's almost three times the amount of people who are actually black people in the state. We are 10% of the population in the city and county of Denver. And speaking of that 10% of the population in Denver, 27% 
of the police use of force cases were against people of color. So that's almost three times the amount of black people, even in Denver. You know, you look at Aurora, mm-hmm. black people in Aurora make up 14 to 16 percent of the population. But every year, black people make up nearly half of the use of force cases. So it's OK to disagree. But I just think that our numbers are speaking to us differently when we read them. Rob, do you disagree on the premise that black people are targeted more often than white people for harshness by police? I don't disagree with that. And hearing Terrence talk about those use of force numbers, I think we have to take a look at that. And we have to ask ourselves why that is occurring. But I want to be clear, I think a step in that process is looking at police policies. And I think it's a very important step. But I think we also have to look at the social and economic opportunities that are provided to our people of color and look at some other things that are causing those things. But those numbers are alarming, and it's definitely something that we in the police profession need to look at. And Rob, I wonder, is there something you might want to ask of someone who's been organizing these protests and kind of how they view things right now? Yeah, I think my main question for Terrence, and you know, Terrence, I've never met you, but those I've spoken to speak very highly of you. I've read about your work. And I guess the first thing before I ask my question is that I would say to Terrence and other folks out there involved in the protest is that I applaud what Terrence has done, because although protests are important, it's important that voices be heard. I think we've seen the importance of that because there is a change of foot, and this is different than any other times in our history or recent history. But I think what's important is that Terrence is out doing the work. He has started these organizations and nonprofits where he is trying to help and add positive dialogue to the conversation. And so my question would be, Terrence, is from your point of view, what can we do as police to avoid these protests and avoid these demonstrations becoming violent encounters against us. And I understand, you know, there's various sides of that conversation about what the police may or may not do. But I have to tell you, oftentimes we are there to protect the peaceful protesters, to protect your rights, to keep you safe. And that oftentimes turns violent against us without provocation. And I think, you know, we've seen some videos out there that would speak otherwise. But for the most part, when these things turn violent, what can we do to avoid that? Because we want protesters' voice to be heard, but we also have to protect businesses and properties and lives of other people. So my answer to that is when we do organize, and I can't speak for it because other organizations are there for different reasons. Some people are there for chaotic reasons and for malicious reasons. Some people are there because a family member is lost or because they were personally harmed. Some people are there just for justice for all, and they just don't like to see it happen to anybody. We want justice for victims of police misconduct and abuse like Elijah McClain, commanding space, holding the space, being, you know, an irritant. But we're not there for anything to get broken. We're not there for anyone to get hurt, nor can we control people who we don't even know, people we've never seen before attaching after we've left. I have seen in Denver and Aurora police attacking protesters who were being peaceful, who were not attacking the police. I have not seen people throwing bottles at the police. I have not seen people attacking officers. 
I was standing right there at the Elijah McClain's visual that we were doing a violin serenade and memories of him and over 200 police officers came and attacked us at the Aurora Municipal Center. I think a lawsuit was just filed on the city of Aurora for that incident. We also organized downtown in Denver, even though there was some property that was damaged a car was damaged from a state representative. Some windows were broken at the Capitol. There was some spray painting. I don't think the police response was warranted or called for. We had journalists who were clearly doing their job getting shot with rubber bullets and, and pepper balls. Those kinds of actions by the police, I don't feel are warranted when a window was being broken. I care more about the loss of life and the loss of eyes or limbs or busted teeth than I do a window at a courthouse or a tire or something like that. Do I want to see destruction happen? Of course I don't. My concern is more about getting justice for the people who were actually murdered by police. But Terrence, to your comment that you have never seen officers being assaulted or bottles being thrown at them, I can tell you numerous officers with both the Aurora Police Department, the Denver Police Department, and agencies throughout this country have been injured in scores during these, what started out as peaceful protests and are still in some areas being touted as peaceful protests. Hundreds of officers have been injured during these. And so I guess I would ask, would you agree that, you know, although folks are angry, and I understand, I, as a man of color, who has been a victim of racial profiling. I actually grew up near where you grew up, up in the Park Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church and was born and raised in Aurora. So I have been a part of those things that made me angry as well. But would you agree that true change cannot happen through violence, through property damage and those things? I understand that you're not worried about a window or you're not worried about you know, spray painting, but there was a lot more that went on on that. People were being hurt. Businesses were being completely destroyed. Would you at least agree with me that there's a better way that we can come to the table and affect change than that? I think the longer lasting change comes from more peaceful actions. I would say Martin Luther King's example definitely brought us closer to getting justice and getting our civil rights than the approach of some of our more violent ancestors who were, you know, protesting and doing demonstrations in the 60s and 70s. So, of course, I would agree mm-hmm. to that. However, in America, it seems like powers that be only listen when the window was broken. And I hate to say that I've never broken a window during a demonstration. I've never told anyone to do that. It's too bad that that's what it takes for us to get where we are. Because when we do peaceful protest and when we are pushing legislation, for some reason, it seems like that doesn't move the needle. I would hope and prefer that things can be peaceful and that we can get justice for Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, and other victims of police homicides and brutality and misconduct. If that doesn't work, I would bounce the question back to you. As the people, what are we supposed to do if the police won't take their knee off of our neck? We're hearing from Terrence Roberts, a key organizer of the recent protests against police brutality and racism in Denver and Aurora. Also with us, Sergeant Rob Pride of the Loveland Police Department and a leader in the National Fraternal Order of Police. 
Roberts has repeatedly expressed disgust at the Aurora Police Department, not just because of the death of Elijah McClain nearly a year ago, but also for the photos officers took at McClain's memorial site, which appear to mock the case. CPR's Andrea Dukakis asked Sergeant Pride about another incident in which a Colorado Springs officer was disciplined after writing, Kill Them All, when referring to Black Lives Matter on Facebook. When we in law enforcement hear about those things happening, it's just defeating because that is completely against what the majority of us in law enforcement stand for, why we do this job, why we put our lives on the line every day. And I fully support the department taking disciplinary action against him. Why they did not fire him or chose not to, I don't know. I wouldn't want to speak to that because I don't know what their disciplinary process is down there. But for us as police officers, especially in this current climate, to be saying things like that, you know, even if you don't agree with everything that Black Lives Matters does and the violence that are sometimes associated behind their demonstrations, that's not appropriate for us. And that certainly is not going to build trust in our communities to have these conversations and affect true change. And I would say, you know, Terrence mentioned the incident with the officers taking pictures out of Elijah McLean's memorial site. I have to tell you, it, for lack of a better term, I will tell you it broke my heart. And this is why it broke my heart, because during testimony on Senate Bill 217, I had the honor of meeting Elijah McLean's mother. I met a mom that lost her son. I met a mom whose son is not going to come through the door anymore. And that is the type of thing that I wish all law enforcement officers could experience because that wasn't just a case. That's somebody's mom, that's somebody's brother, somebody's friend, somebody's loved one. And we have to look at those situations and figure out what we could have done better. And I should say, uh, Terrence Roberts, you worked on Senate Bill 217, which is a, was a police accountability bill that passed. Terrence Roberts, do you agree that most police officers are there to do the right thing and want to protect people? I will say in theory, yes. There's a but. And here's the but. But when we have officers like Rosenblatt, who was fired for pretty much ha-ha and making fun of a photo where he was responsible for a homicide of a young man that is under federal investigation, mind you, and state investigation. This is in the Elijah McClain case. <laughs> yeah, the officer this is an involved. example I'm making. When we have officers like that, now he's suing to get his job back. We need the majority of police officers who are there to protect and serve to say, we don't want you back. Take a hike. I want my children and my family to know that I work for a reputable police department that is here for all people. But we don't have that. But Terrence, can I I interject there? I have to disagree with you, brother, because that is one thing that is frustrating to us as law enforcement when people say things like that. Because you, you don't, well, because you don't know that just because he has filed a suit to get his job back, And we don't know if that suit has to do with the process, uh, wasn't followed correctly, or whatever that is. That doesn't mean that his fellow officers are condoning what he did or that we think that any of that was appropriate or respectful towards the family in any way. We are all painted under this picture when there are those in law enforcement who are bad actors 
or do stupid things like that that make us all look bad. Do I think that every single officer is happy about what happened to Elijah? Of course, I don't think that. But too many officers are either silent about it or they're indifferent to it or they're in agreement with them getting their job back. And I should say the Attorney General of Colorado is investigating the Aurora Police Department for patterns like this. So that's going on right now. Terrence, you know, and I applaud you for coming on and having this conversation with me because what we have found difficult, especially since the George Floyd incident, is that there are not a lot of folks out there that want to listen right now. And that's why I applaud this conversation, and I hope we continue these conversations, because I think we can both take away things from the other side's perspective to make this better. And obviously, the animosity between uh, police and the folks who have been organizing these protests is at an all-time high. I wonder if there's anything that either of you see that could improve the relationship and make for better understanding between the two sides. Yes, ma'am, there is. We need tangibles. We need officers who murder people to be prosecuted. Murder is against the law. Police officers uphold the law. That's when people will start having a better understanding of policing, and that's when people will stop saying things like abolish the police and start over, defund the police, reallocate funds. Because what it seems like the voice of policing that we're getting from the community is not the voice we're hearing from Mr. Pride right now. The voice we're getting is they're all just doing their job. Elijah McClain, they had a reason to murder him. I haven't heard the police saying that. Well, in, no, in, uh, nobody has directly said we're happy about it. Are most officers upset about it? I would hope so. But are we hearing that? No, we're not. Sometimes silence is saying more than actual words. I guess what my point to that is, is that when these things are under investigation, even if officers want to speak out, it's very difficult for them to speak out. And that doesn't have to do with the thin blue line or the code of silence. 28 years of law enforcement, I've never been asked to participate in a quote-unquote code of silence in regards to an excessive force case or an investigation or any of that. I've never been a part of it, never been asked to do it. And I'm hearing Terrence loud and clear that the frustration in the community is that more officers haven't spoken out against officers involved in some of these incidents or said more. Sometimes that's because they can't. But in other cases, we, I think officers understand that investigations bring out all sides and all facts of the case. And so they want to wait because they weren't there. They didn't see what happened. But just because officers aren't speaking out doesn't mean that we don't feel the same frustrations that you do, or more importantly, that we don't want to affect positive change in our profession. Rob, have you seen ways to get beyond this animosity right now and get to a point where there's more understanding between the community and police? Obviously, we're at a point where folks are listening and want to move beyond this situation. Yeah, I think this is part of it, what we're doing today. Both sides coming together and giving viewpoints and listening is key to this. But Terrence made a great point. Talking and listening is a step. Uh, Communities need to speak with their police agencies, and we need to have a full understanding of how our communities want to be policed. The community in Aurora may not want to be policed the same way the community in Littleton wants to be policed. 
And I think police agencies and community leaders have to work together to affect that change, whether that's through policy, training. You know, we've told the community many times, we do not go to work. There's not been a day in my career that I woke up, took my shower, put my police vest on, my 30 pounds of gear, and walked out the door and said, I'm going to try to mess somebody up today, or I'm going to try to get in a shooting, or I'm going to try to kill somebody. We don't do that. Are there officers in our profession that have been in our profession that have done that? Yes. Clearly, history has shown us that. But that's not the vast majority of us on a daily basis. And so if there's more that we can do to have these conversations to avoid police use of force issues and especially deadly force issues, I promise you, we as law enforcement want it to happen. Because when we have these use of force situations, guess who else has a chance of being hurt? We do. And we have families and they have families that they need to get home to at night. And so we want that. And Terrence, before we wrap up, any last word? I just want anybody who is going to listen and all of the law enforcement officers who are going to listen in support of Mr. Pride to understand this. We're not out here for anarchy. No one wants roving groups of gang members and murderers having our city looking like it's, you know, Armageddon. That's not what we're out here for. I'm saving my own life when I'm protesting. I could be pulled over two years from now and be murdered while I'm reaching for my driver's license. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to you, Mr. Pride. I don't want Miss Dukakis getting her eyes shot out with a rubber bullet if she's downtown and there happens to be a protest. We want justice for the victims of abuse and homicide. We're out here for the same reasons you guys are, seeking justice. Terrence, do you have a pen? Yes. Write my number okay. down. Let's talk. I want to I want to come down and wrap with you and and hear some more about what you have to say and have these conversations with you, man. Talk about what we can do to make this better. I'm going to text you, Rob, with my number so you'll have it. Please do, brother. Appreciate it. Sergeant Rob Pride of the Loveland Police Department. He's also a leader in the Fraternal Order of Police. And you heard Terrence Roberts, longtime activist in Colorado, who helped organize the recent protests against racism and police brutality. The two spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Jenny Brendine, education reporter at CPR News. Parents and students have so many questions about returning to school this season. School districts struggle with how to bring kids back to the classroom safely. Big city school districts and rural schools have different challenges, and the experience from family to family can be stark. CPR News is working on the stories that can connect you with how this school season impacts your family. Stay informed. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. Just after freshman Yasmine Garcia arrived at Colorado College, she had to quarantine in her dorm room, a precaution after a fellow student tested positive for COVID-19 last weekend. Garcia came to Colorado Springs from Dallas and describes herself as a social butterfly from a close-knit Mexican-American family. I've actually enjoyed this, like, isolation a little bit, only in the fact that at home, 
I would always be surrounded by people. So I never had like me time or alone time for me to just like reflect, think, do things that I wanted to do. Cause at home, you know, responsibilities. Um, but it's also been a little lonely, not going to lie. It is day five of a two-week quarantine. Garcia says she was able to make a few friends before being sent to her single room. They're all staying in touch through video chat. And since we're all living through the same crisis, like we're connecting and bonding even more on that. These 150 students may leave their rooms to get water or go to the bathroom, wearing masks, of course. Meals are delivered by people wearing protective gear. They drop our food, they knock on the door so that we know that their food is there. And then once like a few minutes pass, we can go outside and get our food. And we have a, a fridge in the room, so we get to uh, save our food. Garcia says her building, Loomis Hall, has no air conditioning, but the college gave out box fans. She says going outside helps, which they're allowed to do for a short period of time with a chaperone, leading them out single file like ducks, Garcia says. Outside, they're confined to a spray-painted plot. I just sit for a few minutes and look at the mountains. Oh, that is the most exciting thing I was about coming to Colorado. The mountains and like the landscape and all of that. That was my most, um, my most exciting reason to come here. But she apparently can't see the mountains from her dorm window. Still, Garcia is optimistic about her liberal arts education once the quarantine is over. She has signed up for a choreography class. Because... I was like, why not? Why do? Why can't I study choreography? I might fall in love with it, and like that might be my career. And Yasmina Garcia may have a good reason to dance. She has tested negative for COVID. Let's get more perspective on the situation at CC from two student journalists, seniors Miriam Brown and Arielle Gordon. They are co-creators of the Colorado College COVID-19 Reporting Project. It is funded by a grant from the school. Brown is at her home off campus in the Springs. Hi, Miriam. Hi. And Gordon's in Maryland, where she'll study remotely until further notice. Arielle, welcome to the show. Hi. And Arielle, is what we heard from Yasmine Garcia typical of what you heard from other students inside Loomis Hall? Is that generally their experience? Yes, we talked to several students on Tuesday um, about what they're going through on campus. They get meals delivered, all three meals, um, lunch, dinner, and breakfast for the next day from a CC employee wearing an N95 mask, a face shield, surgical-type gown, gloves. It takes about five people two hours to make all of those deliveries. On Tuesday, they told us um, they had mac and cheese. They got some cookies and soda um, as part of their food. Okay, so their day's meals are delivered at once. That's why you need the fridge to keep the meals fresh. Uh, Miriam, can you briefly outline what led up to the quarantine? What was the situation here? So the college tested all incoming first years for COVID when they first came to campus. Um, The CC COVID-19 emergency manager, Maggie Santos, said the average turnaround time was about 24 to 48 hours. So Hmm. they had a little bit of time until they received their test results. And until they did receive those results, students were supposed to follow what the college calls enhanced social distancing protocols, namely sticking to your room and wearing a mask anywhere outside your room. On Saturday, the college reported that one new first-year student had tested positive for COVID-19. And in this case, administrators are saying those social distancing protocols were not followed. 
So it was Colorado College students serving as contact tracers who uncovered that the college really might have to quarantine the whole dorm because of exposure to that positive case. Does that mean there was just some bad social distancing behavior? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Right. So mainly the three things Mackie Santa said didn't happen were the social distancing and the wearing masks outside of their room and really just leaving their room. Okay. So that's what leads up to the quarantine. And uh, have others tested positive for COVID-19 or just the one student? So far, we've heard that there's only the one confirmed case, but I believe the students in Loomis have not been tested themselves other than the initial move-in testing. So all we know is that that one confirmed case. Did I hear you say that some students acted as contact tracers? That's interesting. Yes. So actually, a student-led emergency medical response team are the contact tracers at Colorado College. So they're the ones who have been leading the charge here, um, led by one of the campus safety officers who is serving as the central lead for that contact tracing team. All right. So there's the positive result. And then students in Loomis Hall, some 150 of them, are asked to quarantine for a period of two weeks. We are speaking here on day five. Arielle, is it true that at first those students were told they couldn't go outside at all? Yes. Students learned about the quarantine in a dorm-wide Zoom meeting um, sometime later on Sunday. Uh Um, They were told, you know, they wouldn't be allowed to go outside. Students kind of expressed concerned that they wanted to go outside. Why couldn't they? And um, some CC um, officials were able to work with El Paso County Public Health um, to get permission for those students to go outside. So Tuesday was the first day they were outside. And we've also a TikTok from a CC student came out yesterday where she was sitting on the soccer field. Right. They have to be let out, as we said, by a chaperone and then kind of relegated to a spray painted box. Um Colorado College, I think somewhat famously, is on what's called the block system. So you take one course at a time for about three and a half weeks. And uh, I think classes will begin while these students are still quarantined. Arielle, how is that going to work? So classes start on Monday. The students who are in quarantine will attend virtually um, and That'll be the first week of class, and then assuming they're let out of quarantine after that, um, then they can proceed about campus. But right now, everything is virtual, including all new students are attending new student orientation virtually. So the students aren't missing out on anything just yet. And so that means that instructors, uh, professors, and this is true for so many schools, are doing both in-person classes and virtual. It's kind of a mix. Mm Mm-hmm. The professors were given um, are allowed to choose the format um, they'd like to teach their course, and students have said that their professors have been accommodating so far. Okay. Any trouble, do you know, getting books or the kinds of supplies that you need for class? Miriam, you heard anything about that? I think people are helping them get books through deliveries, and I know a lot of my classes have been choosing to use online books. So I think professors have been pretty accommodating there. 
What have you both been able to learn about how CC is handling the student who's positive? I mean, obviously, HIPAA regulations mean that they're not going to reveal that name, I gather. But have you been able to glean much, Ariel? Um, So far, um, they've told us that the student is isolated somewhere else. Um, And when we were talking to Maggie Santos, she said there are no confirmed COVID cases in Loomis Hall right now. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about COVID-19 on the Colorado College campus. A positive test result has meant about 150 students are quarantining right now in a dorm. And our guests are members of the Colorado College COVID-19 Reporting Project, seniors Miriam Brown and Arielle Gordon. And are students generally pleased with how Colorado College has handled this situation? Are there concerns about what the reaction might spell about response going forward? Uh, Miriam, you want to take that? Sure. So the big thing that we've heard so far is students are just wondering if this happens within a couple days of first years moving in, then what does that mean for the rest of the school year? Mm-hmm. Um we hear a lot of frustration more with the situation itself than anything specific from the school. So people are wondering if when upperclassmen come back, will there be another sort of situation like this? Anytime someone tests positive, is it going to require a quarantine like this? Um, I know one student said that there was some unrest around the dorm surrounding communication. So I think that's been the biggest critique is that, They just want to know more about what the college knows when they know it. I mean, just for some context here, Arielle, first years are on campus, I think in part because CC wants to foster that kind of togetherness among freshmen. Not everyone's on campus right now, including yourself, Arielle, but um, just speak to the the lay of the land right now at CC. Uh, So Colorado College is using what they're calling a phased approach um, to bring students back to campus. Um, so right now, um, first year students, transfer students, and some international students are invited back to campus um, to start the academic year on Monday. Uh, residential advisors, new student orientation leaders, and first year program mentors are for the most part the only other students on campus. Um, and then the upperclassmen right now, um, they're saying will come back for block two, which starts September 21st. I'm really fascinated by this reporting project. I'll just say once again that it's through a grant from the college to start covering COVID-19 on campus. Uh, Miriam, does it give you editorial independence? And what else do you hope to do? It does. We, Arielle and I have really been writing every issue. We're working with three faculty members who are serving as kind of balance boards and editors and advisors on this project. And We published our first issue on May 28th, and so that grant allowed us to publish an issue every weekday since for 10 weeks. Now we're no longer publishing every day as we begin to balance this with our school, but we're still (laughs) publishing multiple times a week. And you feel that you'll have editorial independence if you need to be somewhat scathing, perhaps, of student behavior, let alone university behavior. Absolutely. So we are currently working on integrating this newsletter with the existing student publications on campus, Mm -hmm. for example, with the student newspaper. And all of the student publications on this campus are 
run by Cutler Publications, which Ariel and I are co-presidents of this year, and it's a legally independent student governing board for all of those student publications. So it allows us to have complete editorial control over all of those publications. Okay, just in the last minute or so that we have here, I'm interested in your view of this as students of CC, not just journalists. So, Ariel, I think I'm, I'm most fascinated by your story because you remain in Maryland. Is there a part of you that just doesn't want to come to campus? Um, right now, I'm supposed to be living in on-campus housing, so I'm not allowed to be back right now. Um, the travel from Maryland is a bit of a concern, yeah. either flying or a very long drive. Um, but I'd love to be back, you know, in a safe environment. But I think for now, just for my safety, my family and friends, I'll be staying at Maryland and negotiating some time zones while I coordinate everything. It sounds like that's as much about the travel as anything. Is that right? Yeah, it's just the travel and, you know, a concern of what would happen if I test positive or if, you know, I get quarantined when I get back, you know, just kind of the unknown there. Miriam, in just a few seconds, how is your headspace these days? It's certainly a weird time to be a college student. Of course, this is not how either of us wanted our senior years or last for us to go. So I think we're also kind of collectively holding our breaths to see what the job market will look like once we graduate. All right. Holding your breaths to see what happens in the year before you graduate, I think you said there. Seniors Miriam Brown and Arielle Gordon, co-creators of the Colorado College COVID-19 Reporting Project, We should say that Colorado College holds the license for KRCC in the Springs, which is a part of Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.